0: worship team good morning church family like Joe said my name is Seth and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Valley and I am very excited to be up here this morning uh, Joe told me this week well we were planning out how we were going to go forward with Acts uh, heading over we tried to finish by Christmas uh, side note it's not going to happen um, but we we're planning things out and uh, we had to shake things up since uh, our kid will be arriving soon in a few weeks And uh, I sadly didn't steal this from Joe, but Joe told me this week he's never gotten to preach this passage, so sorry, Joe. Um, But yes, uh, we'll be in Acts 15 this morning, 1 through 15. Um, I'm excited to preach this this morning because uh, a lot of the truth found in this is is very relevant to a lot of conversations I've been having recently with family and with friends. And uh, this passage was tough this week. I was preparing yesterday and the day before, and I was writing out my notes, and I got through two pages of notes, and I hadn't even written my first main point yet, and I texted Joe, and I was like, hey, I don't know how long Sunday's going to go, but I promised him we'll be out by 1.30 or 2, so just buckle in, you'll be fine, yeah, so please don't turn with me to Acts chapter 15 this morning. And where we were last week, uh, I think last week and this week are tied in a lot of ways, right? Joe? stood up here last week and brought the fire, right? We learned about Paul's commitment in Acts chapter 14, commitment in the face of death. And I think a lot of us were very shook by this, but it brought us back to where we were over a year ago, right, when we came together as a body of believers and we said we wanna be about the gospel, right? And that's what saves. And fair warning, we're gonna be talking about the gospel this morning, but I encourage you, don't zone out, right? Just give me a few minutes because What is going to be stated by the church here in Acts, the Jerusalem church, is impactful for the rest of history, right? What is said here in Acts chapter 15 changes everything about the message that we we communicate. We were encouraged last week to be intentional during our weeks with our family and our friends, our co-workers, in proclaiming Christ, right? And then that question always comes... What should we say? Well, today, I'm going to tell you exactly what to say, right? It's no mystery, right? We're, we're not sending all of us out during the week not knowing what we should be saying. Today, it's made clear. Thank you to the church back in Jerusalem. So, before we get started, um, I was preparing this week, and, and I was trying to come up. Joe always encourages me to come up with a main idea that overarches the message, and I'm so terrible at Coming up with those main ideas. But this main idea for this week is a fight for the truth, right? Fighting for what is true, right? Which made me ask my question Seth, have you ever been in a fight? I've been in two, okay? (laughs) I've been in two fights, both in middle school, and I'm gonna tell you quickly about both of them, right? First fight, fifth grade, uh, I got mad about something dumb, I punched a kid in the back of the head, and that was the end of the fight. So technically I won, right? Technically I won. But don't, I mean, the reasoning is completely dumb, so I was mad about something that was ridiculous. Second fight, technically was ruled by a fight by Marinaville Middle School, but it wasn't really a fight. It was playing basketball during PE and one of my friends got mad about something and he started just punching at the air. And I stood there and I looked at him and I was like, what are you doing? And then it ended and then I got in what is ISS, or is detention or something, for being in a fight. And I was like, I didn't even throw a punch. Like, what is this, right? So. So then, proceed, I guess, back to more important things. Have you ever fought for what is true? Have you ever mentally, and throughout history, I mean, maybe physically, fought for the truth? Right? It's a much more, less funny, more important fight. Fighting for what's true in the face of somebody or some group or something telling you that's not true but you know that it is, right? And for us, we know that it is because that's what God's Word says, right? And this is a fight that, yes, occurred back during the Jerusalem Council and back during the early church, but this fight is still just as present, right? I would say, based on reading God's Word this week, the fight was settled 2,000 years ago. I would say it was settled, but this fight is still today. And coming up soon, it may not happen this week, it may not happen this month for you, it may not happen in the next year. All of us are gonna be brought into this fight at one point and one time in a conversation, in a debate with family, friends, coworkers, um, depending on what direction our country goes, at the expense of our security and our safety and our jobs, we're gonna be brought into this fight for what is true. And ultimately, I want us to be prepared, right? I want to be prepared and I want you to be prepared As well. So we come off of Acts 14 and we get down into Acts 15. um, And the apostles are fighting for what is true. So I'm going to section it off this week. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and we'll proceed through the text that way. So join me. Acts 15, we'll read 1 through 5 first. But some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they had come to Jerusalem they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary the circumcision in order to sorry it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Let me pray really quick and we'll dive right in. Lord, we love you. We pray that your spirit would guide us in the understanding of what is true this morning. Lord God, may your word be proclaimed Uh, May you save this morning by your truth, and and may your church be equipped to take this gospel forth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, verse 1, these some men that come down, right? It's thought that maybe these men were following Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey, kind of combating against what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. But these some men were called Judaizers, Right? These were Jewish Christians that insisted the Mosaic law, right, given to Moses and then given to the people, must still be upheld. Yes, Christ has come to save us from our sins, but we also have to uphold the law. Right? MacArthur described them as self-appointed guardians of legalism. Self-appointed, they wanted to keep this thought going that the Mosaic law must be held. So think about legalism, dependence on moral law. So, the picture here is Jesus plus something. Right? And as Ethan opened up in his prayer and and during our music, right? The Lord is our salvation. Right? Our salvation is not found in in anything else apart from Him. If it is, then we're missing the truth. So, the claim they say unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse one, cannot be saved. It's impossible can't happen so my first main point this question this morning is history's greatest question this is the greatest question that's ever been asked in history right what must a person do to be saved right at the end of our lives we do do a lot of important things in our lives but when it comes down when we die and pass into eternity that's all that matters where we land on this question what must a person do to be saved? And that's all that matters to our Father, right? When it comes to where we're spending eternity, that's all that matters. So they're saying we cannot depart from the Mosaic Law. can't happen. And if you do that, you cannot be saved. So what was the Mosaic Law? So the Mosaic Law included moral provisions, ceremonial instruction, food and dietary laws, requirements for external purity. But where they're pulling from is Jesus, not Jesus. Genesis 17. Genesis, Genesis 17, 9 through 14. Let me turn there really quick, I'm sorry. Um, Genesis 17, 9 through 14, they're leaning on the law that was given to them. Right? So Genesis 17, I'm not going to read all of 9 through 14, but I want us to read verse 14 specifically. Verse 14 says. "...any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." So God had given them a covenant to do this, right? And if you, if you have not done this, even if you're apart from Israel and you come into the Jewish faith, this was required of you, right? This had to happen, right? So anyone who does not do this has broken my covenant and you're not part of my people, So, if we step back and look at the Judaizers, right, instead of pointing our finger at them, the initial thought is their contention and question about this is a natural response, right? They've grown up in this. This is all that they know, right? Now, some of them have embraced Christ, right, as the Savior, and some of them haven't. But even the ones that have, it's still right here in the back of their mind. Like, what do we do about the law? What do I do about it, right? I've grown up into this, this is all that I know. I was taught that my righteousness comes through obedience to the law. So how can I just cast this aside? This is where they're coming from, right? So their question is a natural response. First of all, the first Christians were Jewish, right? We can't forget that. Jesus was Jewish. The covenant people of God were Jewish. Gentile converts were always circumcised and taught to follow the law of Moses. This is all that they knew. This was the old covenant, Right now, we know that Christ came to establish a new covenant in his blood. We read it every single week in 1 Corinthians 11 when we're doing communion. But what were they missing? Right, They're obviously missing something because Paul and Barnabas are opposed to them in their thought. Everything changed when Christ came. Everything changed. And this is what we see about the new covenant. Right, The new covenant was proclaimed by God through the Old Testament prophets. We know this, right? Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, right? One prior to exile, one during exile. God will give his people a new heart. He will provide his spirit to dwell with his people and then move them to obedience. All the way back to Moses, Deuteronomy 29. They're doing kind of a covenant renewal, reminding the people of the covenant they have made with God. Moses predicts their failure in keeping the law, right? He has delivered the law, Right? They failed. Right? He says, All right, let's regroup. Right? Let's come back. Here's the law again. And guess what? You're going to fail. You're going to fail. But God promises to do what? Deuteronomy 30. He promises to circumcise their hearts so that they will be able to keep the greatest commandment that has already been given to them right? Deuteronomy 6, a lot of this verse specifically, this passage goes a couple years back for us, right? We started talking about this a long time ago, right? We love, and love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? This was their greatest commandment, right? And God was going to, at some point in the future, circumcise their hearts so they could do that, right? He was equipping them to do that, but at the same time, Moses says, you're not going to be able to keep it right which seems crazy right god gives them a the law commands perfection and then knowing they're not going to be able to keep it we'll get that to in a minute but mm, jesus said what jesus said to the apostles and what paul and barnabas is now saying to the judaizers right i am the one that you've waited for right the new covenant is established in my blood my blood has been poured out for you right let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 really quick Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, right? We're not throwing it away. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? He came to fulfill the law. He was the perfect fulfillment of what God had required. So, which brings us to, if Moses knew and God knew, they could never keep the law that was given to them. What's the purpose of the law? Right, Because that's what they're coming from. That's their history. We can't necessarily blame them in their initial response. That's all that they know. So what was the purpose of the law? I'm glad you asked. The law's purpose was to reveal sin and our own inadequacy to meet it. That is why God gave the law. So they would see their sinfulness and cry out to the only one that can redeem them. Right, That is why it was given. It wasn't given to them so they can keep it perfectly and gain their own righteousness. That's not going to happen. It hasn't happened one time in history. And it's not going to happen going forward. Romans 3.20. Sorry, I need some water. I'm good. Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul writing to the Romans, Romans again, 7, 7, What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul is telling the Romans over and over, the law was given to reveal sin, to reveal how sinful we are compared to, right, the law was a revealed divine standard. He set the standard, and we know now Christ is the only one that could meet that standard. The law was given to reveal sin. And comparing ourselves against such a standard reveals our failure to meet the standard. Right? We often look at God's Word, and then you know, as soon as we read it and understand it, you know, revealed by the Spirit to us, we then you know, look out at the world and see what they're doing wrong and then compare it to the Word. No. The Word is first a mirror, Right? We see ourselves in light of what is true, right? Once we do that first, right, once we take the plank out of our own eye, then we look out, right? And then it's a mirror. Then we see through the Word into the world, and everything makes much more sense. That's what the Judaizers were missing here. The law was not given so they could make themselves perfect. The law was given so they would realize they're not perfect. That is why... It was given. So, if not by the law, what must a person do to be saved? I'm sorry, I have another page and a half before we're going to answer that question. Right? What must a person do to be saved? Point number two, Peter's great defense. Let's read verses 6 through 11 in Acts 15. Turn there with me as I navigate through my Kindle really quick. Acts 15, and we're going to read Peter's response. They're at their Jerusalem council, okay? It's been brought before, and the Judaizers double down. They say, this must happen in order for you to be saved. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers... "'You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, "'that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. "'And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them "'by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. "'And he made no distinction between us and them, "'having cleansed their hearts by faith. "'Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test?' by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Wow, what a powerful proclamation and defense from Peter. So what we saw, I'm going to rerun really quick. In verse 2, we saw that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. They were riled up. Right, they had to defend what was true. Verse three: the brothers and sisters in Phoenicia and Samaria, they support all that Paul and Barnabas proclaim about what God had done with the Gentiles. Right, they are overjoyed; they rejoice at this. So, why fight over this? Right, are we not just splitting hairs here? Is this just semantics? Right, am I saying something? You're saying something. It's different words, but we both agree. No, we should all go to battle. Every time when the gospel is at stake. When the truth of the gospel, the only message in the world that has the power to save sinners from their sin, is at stake, Jude 3 says it in this way contend for the faith, right? Put yourself on the line, put your reputation on the line. And we saw Paul, Acts 14, put your life on the line for the sake of what's true. So, back to verse 11. This is kind of the summary verse and what Peter says. What must a person do to be saved? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And back in verse 9, having cleansing, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Right? We're going to break this down verse by verse. Peter's speech, verse 7, right? He says, right, so rewind really quick. Sorry. Peter is referring back to Acts chapter 10. Right? Acts chapter 10. God reveals areas of Peter's life that he doesn't understand about God and his gospel and and his mission and the church and what the church would be built of. Acts chapter 10 is about 10 years ago at this point, right? I didn't realize we've gained so much time since then. It's been 10 years since the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, right? And this still a point of contention, right? In the church, they're still button heads over this. It's been roughly 10 years since God opened Peter's eyes and heart towards the Gentiles, right. Peter proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius and his family, right? And what happened? They believed, right? And he says, side note, this wasn't my idea, right? Peter Peter had a heart for the Jews, right? And he was, in his nature, a Jew, right? And in his culture and his upbringing, he was a Jew. And God says, I'm going to use you, just like he did with Jonah, right? I'm going to use you to take the gospel to a people that you don't think deserve it, right? You're saying that they can't be a part of my family. I'm going to show you how they can. So Peter says, it's not my idea, but it's true, God used me, Acts chapter 10, 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Anyone, any nation. right? This was very shocking to the people of Israel because they were God's people. right? And all of this is now coming on the scene. right? Verse 8. God confirms their faith by what? Giving his spirit, right? This was something done during the first century church to confirm to the apostles, confirm to the disciples, taking the gospel forth for the first time that people's repentance and belief was genuine, right? This is narrative. This is not normative, right? This is narrative, a part of their time, right? We shouldn't think, oh, someone's not a believer because they didn't have this big Holy Spirit experience, right? That's not what the scripture teaches, right? Verse 9, the hearts of Cornelius and his family were cleansed by what? Not by their obedience to the law. They were cleansed by faith, and God confirms his own work for the church. Right? God is saying, My blessing is on this because I have given my spirit. It is God confirming it. And what is Peter saying? You're putting God to the test, right? You're testing God about what is true, right? He describes it as the yoke, right? The burden of the law that they're trying to put on the Gentiles. They were saying, we're so prideful in who we are. As God's people, the Israelites, you have to become a Jew first. You have to become one of us first by this external ritual before you can be saved. It's the essence of pride, right? They were so prideful in who they were, they couldn't even consider the thought that God can save anyone He wants to if they would just repent and believe. And then he settles the score for all eternity. Verse 11, Peter forever answers this question, not by the law, but all are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, church? And I realized through preparing for this message, the book of Galatians, right? We're going to turn to Galatians really quick. Why? Shortly after the Jerusalem Council, so this is AD 49, Paul writes to Galatia. This is a region that included churches he had just come from. Churches he had helped establish in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. What is he doing? All of the Galatians is addressing this question. From start to finish, it is addressing this question. So Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Paul delivers an account of his time at the Jerusalem council. He tells them about it. This is what happened. This is who I saw. This is who I talked to. Right? And the apostles officially receive Paul as teaching the same message of God's grace that they have been teaching. He is officially, you could say he's confirmed as an apostle by the other apostles at this point in time. Galatians 2, 11 through 14, you may be familiar, the rebuke of Peter. Right? What was happening at the Jerusalem council? Well, Peter got there earlier with the other apostles, and they're you know they're chumming it up, they're eating together, they're spending good good time. The Judaizers arrive on scene, and what does Peter do? He withdraws, right? It's no longer eating with them, very minimally associating with them. And Paul rebukes him to his face, right? It's very strong, right? But it's it's like the beginning of this chapter, right? With no small dissension and debate, they defend what is true. It's exactly what Paul does. He rebukes Peter from withdrawing from the Gentiles in fellowship, right, when the circumcision party arrive, right? Which ultimately, if we rewind what we went to in community groups recently, we talked about not leading other believers into sin. This is exactly what Peter does here. He brings Barnabas down with him, right? Barnabas is led astray, possibly doesn't say so, but possibly into the same sin that I would say Peter is doing here. Right? withdrawing from the Gentiles because they were not part of the circumcision party. But, Galatians chapter 2, this verses 15 and 16. Galatians chapter 3. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that the person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Galatians 2, 20 through 21. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness is found through the law, we don't need him. We don't need Christ. He need not come, because all we'd have to do is be really diligent in organizing our lives so we could keep this law. That's what Paul is telling them here. Galatians 3, 10 and 11. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do not do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteousness shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's where we started our first memory verse, 18 months ago, Romans 16 and 17. This is where the Reformation started, right? Luther looks at this and he reads the Word, and it says the righteous will live by faith, and that was completely against what the church, right? The Roman Catholic Church was teaching, Right? They were saying the righteous shall live by, yes, faith in Christ, but I'll also have to hold all these things, right? And I have to pray to Mary, right? And I have to believe in two different kinds of sins, right? And I have to run to the priests, right? And the leaders holding the understanding of God's Word because I can't understand God's Word for myself. No, it's not true, right? It's not True. That's not the gospel that was preached, and that's not the life of the believer that was preached by the early church. Galatians 5. Turn with me one more, really quick. Galatians 5. If I can get to it, there it is. Galatians 5, verse 1, and then verse 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of of slavery verse 6 for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love the whole book is written answering this question that describes the law as a yoke of slavery don't submit to it right you're not going to be victorious eternally by the works of the law only by faith Working in love. Get the picture of Peter and Paul here. If we add anything to the gospel, you lose the gospel. It's not true. Why should we talk about going to the nations, and yet we go and tell them, believe, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but if you don't keep these rituals perfectly, right? If you don't keep these things, you can't be saved. We're sorry, right? And then we're going to leave and not show you how to do that properly. That doesn't make any sense. If righteousness is by the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He need not come for any reason. The grace of God is sufficient for the salvation of sinners. Fully sufficient. You need nothing else. Right? And if we're preaching a message, right? If we're taking a message forward that is Jesus plus something. If that's what we're bringing forward, that's not the good news of the gospel. Go read the text. It's not there. Right? If we think that Christ was the perfect fulfillment of the law, then why do we need these other things to obtain God's grace? It can't happen. It won't happen. Don't believe it. We must fight for the gospel. Romans 1:16 and 17 is the only gospel that saves It's the only one. We must fight for it. And then finally, point number three, we see James' support and suggestion going forward. I don't want to overlook verses 12 and 13, so we'll read Acts 15, 12 through 21, and then we'll talk about 12 and 13 really quick before we go to James' suggestion. So Acts chapter 15, 12 through 21. Let me read it for us really quick. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done to them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and for what has been strangled, and from blood. For from the ancient generation Moses had been in every city that those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So verses 12 and 13, the assembly has no response, right? They hear this proclamation from Peter. And they fall silent after Peter's defense. Paul and Barnabas speak up, right? And they're talking about God's blessings, right? God, in confirmation of the message that Paul and Barnabas were bringing forward, delivers signs and wonders by their hand. What? Not to make them look cool, right? That's not the point of it. It's to confirm his own work, right? God does not grant signs and wonders by a message that is not of his word right we didn't see excuse me we didn't see the jewish church right and in the synagogues you don't see them performing signs and wonders why because god is not blessing that he's blessing the gospel that jesus taught he's confirming the works of his own hands but then we have james right this is not the james that was martyred earlier in acts this is jesus's half brother right and author of the bible book bearing his name right along with peter and john James was a pillar, a recognized main leader in the Jerusalem church. So the fact that James is standing up and saying, this is what I say should happen, right? This is almost like a, this is our path forward, right? James speaking up here, very important. He confirms the message of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, defending salvation by grace through faith, free of circumcision and free from the law. He confirms them by quoting the prophet Amos, right? He goes all the way back to Amos. Why? Why does he quote from Amos chapter 9? Well, Amos chapter 9 was saying that the Gentiles will be welcomed, grafted into the family of God as Gentiles, right? They need not become Jews first. There is nothing so special about The Jewish people—that you had to become a Jew first and then enter into salvation—I heard it described in this way during a sermon: like the, uh, imagine like a, you know, the screen door that your grandmother had, right? That would just, you know, you walk in. There's a little bit of relief, and then you go into the house, right? You have this small area, right? Judaism is not the screen door by which we enter the house, right? We don't have to pass through some other way. Right, some other belief in order to get to God. That's not what he's saying. We don't need to become Jews first. James proclaims that all of the prophets agree with Peter, Peter's claim. What Peter has said, all of the prophets agree. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zechariah. And then Paul says again in Romans 15, it's the same message. It's been taught throughout all of history, and they've just missed it right they've just missed it or they've forgotten it over time so with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone established James takes a quick turn right because we know this is true right because we know this is true this is what i suggest that we do James suggests certain things to foster fellowship between jewish and gentile christians they still had to serve in the same church together They still had to be shoulder-to-shoulder working together for gospel advancement. So how do we deal with this butting of heads, right? How do we deal with it? Well, this is what James suggests. One, he agrees, do not trouble the Gentiles with the issues of the law. Don't trouble them with it. They don't need it. But we know, Jewish Christians, how you can be hung up on things because of your past. Right? Because you, were gr- you grew up into the law, we understand your position. right? We understand where you're coming from. So he, he suggests, and what we'll be going into next week is this very thing, he suggests we write a letter to the Gentile churches. Write a letter to them instructing them to abstain from four idolatrous practices for the sake of fellowship and for the pursuit of holiness. He doesn't just say, hey, we don't want you to be doing these things just so you won't offend them. No, it's for the sake of their holiness. It's for the sake of departing from pagan rituals right, and growing in Christ. But yes, it was also for the sake of fellowship. And ultimately, these four things boil down to food offered to idols, sexual immorality, and dietary restrictions. These were major parts of the Jewish law, the law of Moses. So... What James is telling them, he's telling these Christians, display grace towards one another. right? We have different convictions in our understanding and our background of God's Word of what we will do and won't do based on our convictions. And he's saying display grace towards one another in their convictions rather than boasting in your freedom. You see, what could happen here if they don't address this right now, the Gentiles could possibly boast and all the freedom they have to do whatever they want, right? And what could that do? Potentially lead Jewish Christians astray, right? The law was perfect, okay? And they grew up in this law. Could they, could they hold it? No, they couldn't hold it. But the law in itself was perfect. It's not flawed in any way. But he's telling them, don't, let's write to them so they will not boast in their freedom. 1 Corinthians 8 talks a lot about this, not violating the consciences of the weak, right? There are people out there that are weak in their understanding, and if we lead them to something that, yes, technically we are free to do, right? In Christ we are free to do these things, it may lead this other person astray, to the point where they may think they're sinning, right? Then they may become discouraged and leave the faith altogether. He's saying, no, for the sake of fellowship, right, we have to encourage them to abstain from these practices for the sake of fellowship and for the sake of the pursuit of holiness. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 8 leads into 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about why. Why do we do these things, right? Why should we pursue fellowship with one another? right? Why should we not boast in our freedoms, but maybe sometime put our freedoms aside for the sake of discipleship, right? For the sake of encouraging a brother or a sister that we know is going to have a hard time with this one thing, even though we're free to do it. We know that they're going to have a hard time with this, so I'm going to put that aside so that I can lead them better. This is exactly what James is talking about here. and then 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Says, do not abuse the freedom you have in Christ. And Paul says he becomes all things to all people. For what purpose? Why does Paul do this? So that he has advantage in his mission. Right? Paul does all of this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Read it really quick. I'm sorry, I think it's a good way to cap off this message. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became one as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. That by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's saying for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of gospel advancement. Pursue holiness, yes, but be aware of the other people that are around us and their convictions, right? And this Ways very true when we talk about different cultures, right? Shocker, a lot of cultures are not like the U.S., right? It's not like the American culture. It's different, right? They have different things that we learned, even over in Nepal, that they do, right, because it's a cultural thing, right? And we go, hmm, that doesn't make any sense. But guess what? We're no better than them. But for the sake of the gospel going forth, it's okay to put aside our freedoms sometime, Right, so coming back full, per, full picture to where we were last week, right? Joe challenged us to be committed, right? To be committed to this church family and be committed to obedience to what Christ has told us to done. We have the Great Commission, and if we're not taking the gospel forward first to our homes, then to our families, then to this community, and then to the world, if we're not prayerfully seeking that if we're not seeking opportunities for these discipleship relationships in order to better do that, we're not doing what Christ has told us to do. It's not happening. So I want to encourage us this week. The message that we have to communicate is not difficult, right? It's not a complicated message. It's a message that says, you're messed up. I'm messed up, right? And it's all because we have inherited this sinful nature. But praise God, He has not left us in our sinfulness. He's not just put us aside and said, good riddance, no, He said from the beginning of time, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to come to the world in the form of man. I'm going to be fully God and fully man at the same time. I'm going to live perfectly I'm going to fulfill the law that they could not meet, the divine standard that I set up for my people. They can't meet it, but I can. I can meet it, and I'm going to meet it, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to pour out my blood for those that would repent and believe in me. That they would not trust in the law, but they would trust in what I've done for them. And if you do that, the Word tells us that you will be received into eternity Right? Being a child of God, not because what you've done or contributed. Right? The only thing we bring to the table in our salvation is our sin that makes it necessary. That's all you can do. Right, Don't think that we bring forward our culture or our good background or the fact that we're good people. You're not, and I'm not either. But the message of the gospel is that Christ, in his grace, has extended the hand of salvation by the truth of the gospel. <laughs> and all he requires is the faith that, guess what, he gives that to. So be encouraged this week. The message you take forward, the Great Commission, is costly, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. <laughs> guess what? The message is already here, right? You've already been given what message we need to take forward. May we be a church that reaches this community and then takes the true message of the gospel by grace, through faith, to a world that needs it. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you that you are bringing us to conviction week after week by your word. We thank you that your word is what we need. Your word, your gospel is the power of God for salvation through those who believe First to the Jew and then to the Greek. Thank you, God, for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you, God, out of your grace and mercy that you extended the hand of salvation. You sent your Son so that we may have life. May you be glorified in the work that you have done and the work that you continue to do in building your church. May we not shy away from this responsibility, but may we proclaim the hope that we share.